Okay, so, you know, making your way in the world today, um, it takes everything you got. Wouldn't you like to, you know, take all your worries, get away from them? It sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Because you want to be where you can see that our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everyone knows your name. Some of the young people in here are like, why is he rhyming? What is he doing right now? That is, those are the lyrics to the theme song to the hit TV show Cheers, which was one of my favorites growing up. Uh, my dad had the VHS t- tapes for all the seasons. Some of the young people in here going, what's that VHS tape? Right? And I watched every single episode. I loved it. And the lyrics to that song speak to the atmosphere of Cheers, right? It was this place where you could go and everybody knew your name. I loved the character Norm. Every time he walked in, it was like, Norm, you know? And it was just this great uh, example of an atmosphere where you could truly be known and belong. And I always remember as a young kid, like, wanting some kind of experience like that, kind of like Norm got, where he could walk in and everybody would know his name immediately. And I never really uh, achieved that status. I think the closest I got was a restaurant that my family loved to go to in Abilene. It was called, uh, it was a Chinese restaurant. It was called Peking House. And uh, we went all the time. Uh, every Sunday after church, we would go. I went all the time in, in high school. And so it was one of my favorites. And so when I went to college and I was denied the regular uh, going to Peking House, it was like at the top of my list when I'd come home for a visit. This is where we're going to go. And I'll never forget on one of my first breaks, coming back to Peking House, and I walked in there, and they didn't know my name, but they sat down next to me, and the server came up. She goes, let me guess, lemon chicken sauce on the side. And I was like, that's right, you know me. It was so great. And, and so that's probably as close as I got. And that's a very trivial example, but it's an example of what it means to belong, right? That we have this kind of innate desire and this innate comfort when we arrive at a place or with a people where we truly are known. They know our names, they know our stories, they know our troubles. That, that's what we talk about with belonging. And while we can all probably draw from these various trivial examples that provide that for us, probably the most pronounced one that I would think most of us can identify with is the, the feeling you get when you arrive home. Right? I mean, we, we've done several trips throughout the summer, and as much as I love them and I love the experiences and the travel and the memories you can make, there's just this feeling you get when you come back home, isn't there? I mean, you walk through those doors and you just feel a little bit more at ease, more relaxed. You, you feel a sense of rest that's finally there, and it's because you're, you're home. And it, it's not just the, the, the place, it's not just the four walls, it's the people that you share that home with. Those are the people that truly are going to let you be who you are. They're going to love you for who you are, right? There's just something about that strength of belonging, especially when you find it at home. And, and that's really kind of the thrust of today's message. That's the theme that, to me, we can extract in our discussion today is for us to go through this sermon series, but in particular focusing in on this text today and remind ourselves of what it means to truly to belong to Christ, what it means to belong in this heavenly home that he has promised us. And so the more we can get a sense of that, the more it can truly be an anchor for our souls and we can be the pillars of strength that he's called us to be. So grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Let's have this conversation. Last week we started the discussion on the church of Philadelphia. Uh, we'll finish that discussion up today and then we have one more church 
to walk through with the church of Laodicea. Last week we talked about in Philadelphia that there weren't too many notable things to its history, but one aspect that did stand out was that it was in an area that was susceptible to earthquakes. In fact, in AD 17, the entire region, um, at least several cities in the region, were level, Philadelphia being one of them. And so as a result, people were a little hesitant to live within the city. They often lived in the outskirts of town, and they understood what it, mean, what it meant to see some of those things being destroyed, some of those buildings, some of those structures. So that was one aspect to this region. Additionally, in addition to that, we know that Philadelphia was located on the imperial road from Rome that went to the eastern part of the empire. And so as a result, it was a fortress city. It was known for its strength, and that's really kind of the theme we extracted in our conversation last week, this, this moment where Jesus says, though your strength is small, or though your strength is limited, right, you've held on to my word, you have not denied my name, this, this call, this, this uh, command to keep holding on to Christ. And so we carried this, this conversation into that familiar paradox of the gospel where it is in our weaknesses it is in our limited strength, in, in our weaknesses, that we find the strength and the sufficiency of Christ. What a beautiful gift that is. So we talked about this idea that in those moments of weaknesses, what we have to do is come before our Father and just say, carry me. Right? And we see, once again, his faithful arms carrying us through even the hardest times. And so that's been the tone, this, this letter of encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. And so we're going to continue that discussion today by following along with those last two verses, verses 12 and 13, that lead us into what is promised to those who are victorious, to the one that God carries through. Let's follow along, starting in verse 12. It says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's following that same formula, right? This is a conversation to, to the overcomers, to those who are victorious. And it speaks to, once again, listening to what the Spirit says to the churches. And in this particular discussion, these two verses focus in on two promises in particular. It's kind of a twofold promise. And we're going to really kind of look at both of these somewhat briefly and then use them as a springboard to, springboard to kind of launch a little bit more intentionally into a, a particular detail that is referenced. And so the first part of the promise to those who are victorious, to those who overcome, is that you will be made into a pillar in the temple of my God. Now that's a pretty interesting comment. You saw it up here with the children's message that pillars are these these linchpins to a structure, right? It's, it's a source of strength and stability. And one of the reasons that this probably would have resonated with the church in Philadelphia is that should a structure be leveled as a result of an earthquake, as was common in this region, one of the areas or one of the elements to those structures that would often remain standing were pillars, right? The rest of the structure could be leveled, but the pillars would be remaining secure and strong. And so it almost would be an image that would be very easy for this church to conjure up in their minds to say, okay, that's, that's a source of strength, right? That when the world around us is shaken, we stand strong. And, and that's kind of the reward here. That's, that's the promise. To be a pillar in the temple of God is not necessarily speaking to a, a, an actual temple in the day of Philadelphia, nor is it even some other physical structure, as much as it is pointing to the kingdom of God. This is, this is a, a reminder of salvation itself. That God saves us. When this world is shaken, nothing can thwart the strength of the gospel. 
It can keep you standing strong. We are made into these pillars of strength. And so I guess one of the questions we should ask ourselves this morning is, is how shakable are you right now? How secure do you feel like you can stand, especially as it pertains to faith? Right When the world around you gives way, do you fall with it? Are you able to stand strong with that resiliency because of your faith? Right? When you think about those challenges and you think about those difficult circumstances, when you think about those questions and those doubts and all those things that can emerge, are you able to cling and hold tight to the gospel, once again seeing that it is sufficient and sturdy enough to endure all things? That's, that's the promise. Right? I'm going to get you through this. You will be like a pillar in my kingdom. What a beautiful promise to behold. Now, one of the things that works with it, that kind of uses the same imagery, though it reads almost as two distinct promises to us, is keep in mind that in a lot of these pillars in these ancient temples, you would see inscriptions. If you were a notable uh, individual with certain status and prominence, it wouldn't be unusual for you to have your name inscribed on one of these pillars in one of these famous temples. And so to have a pillar with an inscription would have been, again, part of the image and part of the the picture that would have been brought up to the church's mind. But here, we don't have your own name being inscribed. You have a different name. You have the name of God inscribed on you. You have the name of the city inscribed on you. So the idea of inscription conveys this message of ownership and possession, or another way to say it would be belonging. Right? It's, it's like, the name that is written on you is signifying where you belong. You think about Toy Story and, and Woody, you know, he's got the name Andy on his boot because that's who he belongs to. And so it's not about our names getting recognition. It's not a message about a new status or a new symbol. It's about a reiterating of who do you belong to and where do you belong. And that to me is such a beautiful thing for us to consider this morning. Because our souls long for that belonging. We, we desire it almost innately. And this is a reward that says you're going to find out exactly where you truly and fully belong. And so when you think about those inscriptions, there are two references, right? One of the inscriptions is, is the name of God, the name of Christ, the new name. Now, we could dive into that, and we have a lot of things that could fill our time together today if we wanted to go that direction. But we're not going to because we've already done it. Uh, if you were with us during the season of Lent, we went through the 40 names of Jesus, or at least 40 names of Jesus. And so there's some real incredible messages and incredible truths that we can be encouraged by and reminded of when we consider all the different names of Christ and what that affords to us. And so I'd encourage you, go back and revisit those things. Maybe you still have your Lenten devotional guide. But what really grabbed me and what I want us to really focus in on is that it's not just an inscription of God's name, it's an inscription of the new city holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's not just who you belong to, but where's home. And that's a part that I want to dive into. You know, we talk about heaven a lot. We, we have books that are out there. Culture has a lot of different things to say about it. Maybe you've conjured up in your own ideas, in your own mind, what heaven will be like. But it's one that I think is worthy of our consideration this morning because of what it can mean for us as an anchor for our lives today. And so the follow-up question would be, well, what is New Jerusalem? What will it be like? That's an important question. And I want to use that question as kind of a side note to reiterate a healthy way to read Scripture. 
right? A good lesson to think through is that Scripture interprets Scripture. It'd be easy to say, well, what is heaven like? And then take all of those cultural references, all the books that we've read, all the testimonies we've heard, and create some concept of heaven that is not necessarily rooted in Scripture. And a lot of times we have that tendency to bring our own perceptions to the text rather than letting the text shape our own perceptions. And so the best way to do that is to say, okay, well, what does Scripture say? Is there anything else in here that can guide our understanding of what is this new Jerusalem? And thankfully, we get such a picture. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip on over to Revelation chapter 21. And here's what we're going to do. This is an elaborate depiction of the new Jerusalem that is promised. And we're just going to read it. And, and I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge it's a long, I mean, I'm going to read the whole chapter, right? So it's a long passage of scripture. And that kind of breaks with our norm and our expectations. A lot of times when we're in church, we're like, all right, just give me a few verses and then I'm ready to go. And we get in analytical mode and try to break it down, tell me the points. And, and sometimes we lose the strength to just meditate on God's word and just let it speak on its own. And so that's what I want us to do. I want you to embrace the moment. And just let the word of God minister to you. Hear it anew. And so maybe you want to just close your eyes and have it read over you. Maybe you want to follow along on the screen, follow along with your scripture. But again, this is the holy word of God describing where we belong. And so let's read this together. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewels, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were in the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel had talked with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. 
The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Holy Word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So you read a story like that. This is a vision that has captured the minds of artists for centuries. Musicians have written songs about this vision. Architects have built cathedrals about this vision. So if it stirs the architect to build, and if it stirs the author to write and the musician to sing, what does it do for you? How does it stir you? What role does it play in your life, this hope of this new Jerusalem? It merits our reflection today, doesn't it? It merits our Worthy consideration. There's so many things that you see in it. The reason it's so inspiring is because of all the imagery that you find referenced. So many beautiful references to, to different stones and water of life and a beautiful bride, right? It's, it's filled with incredible imagery that captures the mind. Now embedded within that, which can often be lost on us, is also the fulfillment of so many prophecies. In fact, so much of what is referenced in Revelation 21 is found in Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 65 and Ezekiel 40 through 48 to the point that many commentators would say this is almost like this fusion of all these prophecies being brought into one, all these Old Testament illusions coming to life in this new Jerusalem. It's incredible. And yet it's also sobering. Right at first glance when you read it, it's a reminder that there are two destinies that await us. The first that is referenced is this destiny of the second death which we've already talked about in one of our other sermons in this series that you can go back and listen to. But for those who do overcome to the victorious, their destiny is not the second death, but it's the new Jerusalem. And so what do we learn about it? And we don't have the time to exhaust it verse by verse, line by line, as much as that would be enjoyable. Let me just offer a few um, highlights of what we've just read, kind of starting with that second section first, verses 9 through 27. You see all the references to these precious stones of gold and, and crystal and all these different things that are included. And, and I don't know that any of us know if it's literal or figurative. We know it's going to be beautiful. But what those stones and that beauty is really meant to convey to us today is that the city, the new Jerusalem, will be filled with the glory of God. The radiance of his glory surrounding and encompassing the city. What an incredible 
thing to behold. The, the measurements that are taken, right? You see this long section of all these different measurements that are really meant to, again, not articulate a specific architectural build, but a level of perfection, right? It's a perfect square with increments of 12 that abound that call to mind the stories of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Christ. You see this perfect uh, dimension, both in length and height and width. You see things that are in increments of 12. And so this is the perfect city. There is no flaw. There is nothing that is limited or debilitating about it. It is fullness and its perfection, so much so that a temple is not even needed. If you think about the whole concept of a temple, and part of even what we see in these children's messages with this light, right, them being lampstand, is that as long as there is a broken world, a temple is needed to shine the radiance of God's glory and hope to the broken world around us. But in this city, there is no need for a temple because the Lord and the Lamb dwell among them. Right? And that's really the essence of this perfection, right? The essence of this perfection and the, the, the no need for a temple is to say this is where the, all of God's promises get fulfilled. Every single promise gets fulfilled at this new Jerusalem. And how amazing that will be for us, church. Right? You think about the promises that you experience in life. And you think about those moments where people fail to live up to those promises. And the disappointments that it can create. And the wounds that it can create. Right? It often breaks trust. And so what does it mean for us to sit in this moment anticipating something that is yet to come knowing that those promises will be fulfilled but also dealing with the reality that so many times we doubt and we wonder we go through those difficulties and we begin to ask ourselves will God actually bring this to fruition is all this true is can I really hold on to it all those questions that we naturally encounter at some point in our lives how do we know that God's promises for the new Jerusalem will be perfectly fulfilled we look to Jesus. Right, when we look upon the manger and we look upon the cross and the empty tomb, it is a deposit for this glory that we all await. Right? It is a, an indicator to each of us that this glory has already revealed itself to some capacity and we can trust that it will be brought to its fulfillment. Right? We look to Jesus and we know that God will absolutely fulfill his promises. And what is the essence of that promise that is experienced in the new Jerusalem? It's the presence of God himself. To be with him. To dwell with him. To be his people and for him to truly be our God. That's what the first section really captures so poetically and so beautifully. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, The old heaven and the old earth have passed away and there is no longer any sea. Now, that's an interesting phrase that I want to call your attention to. What, what is that referring to? Well, if you read throughout the book of Revelation, the sea is symbolic. If you go back to Revelation 12, verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Revelation 13, 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten crowns on its horns, and on each one, each head, a blasphemous name. Revelation 20, 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. So when you get to Revelation 21, and you have this 
image that has been painted throughout the book of Revelation, that the sea is indicative of evil, it's indicative of death, it's the source and the origin of the beast, then all of a sudden it is no more. And so that reference, the old heaven, the old earth, there's no longer any sea, says there's no hint or trace of evil in this new Jerusalem. Instead, God is doing something new. It's what he says, I'm making all things New. Now that word new is not referring to new in time, right? New in sequence, not like it's recent, but new in quality. Something better, something more glorious, something more splendid. I'm doing something new. And as a result, the old order of things has passed away. Can we stop for a moment and think about how incredible it is to know that the old order of things will pass away? And I want that to be an encouragement to us this morning. Because the old order of things is brokenness. The old order of things is where sin runs deep. The old order of things is disease. Tragedy. It's that phone call in the middle of the night that shakes your world. The old order of things is fear and apprehension and paranoia. The old order of things is corruption, injustice, violence. The old order of things is being forgotten, feeling like you don't belong. All of it has passed away. Now you look at the descriptions of what happens when God dwells with his people and this old order is no longer among us. Perhaps the most notable is that death is no more. No more funerals. No more gravesides. No more hospital rooms. No more mourning. No more heartache. No more despair. No more emptiness that swallows us whole. The one that really grabs my heart and my mind whenever I read through Revelation 21 is the phrase, no more crying. It wipes every tear from my eyes. You know, crying is an interesting thing to, to explore and to study. I don't know how much you've ever looked into it. I think just by experience, we all recognize that we cry for a variety of different reasons. We can cry because we're happy. We can cry because we're laughing so hard, right? There are tears that come for a lot of different reasons. We know maybe even some of the technical aspects that we have these tear ducts that help moisten our eyes and all these different things. But if you really begin to wrestle with why is it when we're talking about sadness and we're talking about pain that the, the human response is one of tears? You know, there, there have been a lot of, of studies on this really that date back as far back as the Old Testament. Uh, But really, even though there's not a tremendous amount of research, the research that has been done on it and those that have kind of taken that question to hold and have tried to give some semblance of an answer, a lot of times people don't agree. And there have been some really interesting theories throughout the years as to why the human response is to cry. Let me share a few with them, a few with you. I, I came across an article in Time Magazine that was written by Mary Oaklander in 2016. She was talking about this subject of crying and she referenced a book that she was reading in eight theories that were, uh, I guess, kind of capturing some of the most recent discussions on it, some of which were pretty ludicrous. I'll give you a few examples. Um, 1960s, 
There is a view that humans evolved from aquatic apes and tears helped us live in salt water. Take that one home, I guess. Other theories um, developed and were popularized by uh, people like a biochemist by the name of William Frey in the 80s. His argument was that crying removes toxic substances from the blood that build up during times of stress, right? So there are a lot of these different theories, some of which are not exactly um, easier to embrace, but others that seem to resonate. And one of the theories that she advocated for in this article is, I think, the one that speaks to so much of the human experience that we can identify with. She says, tears trigger social, social bonding and human connection. While most other animals are born fully formed, humans come into the world vulnerable, physically unequipped to deal with anything on their own. And even though we get physically and emotionally more capable as we mature, grown-ups never quite age out of the occasional bout of helplessness. So crying signals to yourself and other people that there's some important problem that is at least temporarily beyond our ability to cope. That's why we cry. Helplessness. A signal. I can't cope with this. And I need help. And what we get to trust in and believe in this morning is that when we are able to finally take residence in the new Jerusalem and he wipes every tear from our eyes. He wipes them for good because we know our help has finally come and come in full. Can you imagine? Never feeling helpless ever again. What a hope for his church. A beautiful thing to cling to. And that's how I want us to be encouraged this morning because perhaps one of the most difficult things for us to encounter in life are those moments where we feel like we don't belong. We've lost a sense of where we can go and who we can go to. We struggle with it in this world. We struggle to find that sense of of belonging. And so when we hear this promise and we're reminded of whose name is ascribed upon our hearts and our souls and our minds. In the name of this city, it tells us once again of where we truly belong. And that our hope is never meant to be anchored in this earthly world, but the one that is built upon eternity. So let me encourage you again, church, hear me, believe me with your whole heart. There will be a day when you drink from the waters of life. There will be a day where you stand in this city surrounded by those precious stones and the glory of God. There will be a day when you look at these walls in complete perfection, experiencing the fullness of his promises. There will be a day where all mourning and sorrow and suffering are gone. A day when we eat from the tree of life. A day where we hear his voice say, I'm making all things new. It is finished. He will be our God and we will be his people. There will be a day, church, when we fully discover that he's not just carrying us through our present moment. He's carrying us home to the new Jerusalem where we truly belong. Be encouraged today. 
Now let it make you the pillar that you were created to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We pray that you'd help carry us home. Father, for anybody that's in this room today that is longing for a sense of hope, longing for a sense of love and compassion and understanding, may they be encouraged that once again, we are a people who belong to you. Let us be encouraged by this vision of this new Jerusalem, God, that far exceeds our ability to comprehend and understand, but can still encourage us and speak to us in such a way that it gives us the strength that we need to face tomorrow. So help us to stand strong. Help us to look to you. Adelaide, we fixate our hearts and our minds on the cross and the empty tomb. May we lift up our hands and once again ask you to carry us, God, not just through our current challenges and difficulties, but to carry us home. How we love you. We trust in you.